Welcome back and thank you for joining for part two of Equity Meets Entertainment. Our conversation continues with our guests, soprano Zoe Rose Paulus, Rebecca Rouse, and Amber Lynn Ashley. Before jumping into our continued discussion, make sure you listen to part one, where you will get to meet our podcast guests and hear our initial conversation with them about DEIJ in the entertainment industry. Let's get started. I'm curious, as we transition to our next question, how, if you'd be willing to answer first, how working with students or offering opera as a space of catharsis and of success and of joy connects to how social movements in the last several years have have changed your industry or not. You all have have spoken to this um, throughout our conversation, but just wanted to come back to that. And when I say social movements, I mean explicitly the murder of George Floyd, all of the changes and push around abolishing the police around, I mean, even recently in the last year, around reproductive rights. So just how these these big social movements have have influenced your field and, and what that looks like for you. Um, and I just felt like that was connected to what you talked about. So if you wouldn't mind sharing. I- sure. So to speak to Amber's point earlier, because it definitely really incited some thought within me because when Mike Brown was murdered, Ferguson, that, I, let's see, I was in, uh, probably, I think I was a freshman or sophomore in high school. And before I had always, you know, considered myself, uh, of course, a sociopolitical liberal. And that was a big adjustment because I grew up Jehovah's Witness and in the Southern Baptist Church. <laughs> Yes, my adoptive family was Jehovah's Witness and my mom was, you know, between Southern Baptist, Anglican Church, where she music directed the longest. So very conservative uh, manifestations of Christianity. And it was a change with, with cameras, with access to this information directly. And I'll never forget, you know, being up late on the family computer on Twitter and watching the Periscope. It sounds so crazy to, because that this was so long. I like, I feel old saying that. <laughs> and I, <laughs> anyway, um, watching what was happening on, on the ground, for lack of better, um, of the protests from people who were protesting and who were present right after the murder and, versus what was being reported in the news mere hours later was mind-blowing to me. I had no idea about this incredible uh, racist uh, capitalistic media bias was to the extent that it is and was. And it's unfortunate that it takes an event like that to spark change. And that has sort of been a through line or pattern in the industry as well. So recent events <laughs> created a movement of um, Black Lives Matter statements. And I don't want to uh, negate that effort because I don't feel like it's it's my place. But I will say a lot of my colleagues have often felt like it was just that a statement and 
not much by way of actionable change. You know, the first opera, the Metropolitan Opera, the Met, by a Black composer, just happened in 2021. We have a, a hun- hundreds of, of, of years of, of history at one of the greatest houses in, in, the, in the world. And now this season, you know, thankfully they, they are moving forward and we have more works by people of color and Black composers in general. And now smaller houses have taken the lead across the country. And I think that that is, an, that, that is genuinely an amazing push forward. You know, and now I get to see my friends and my colleagues cast and not just works by, you know, Black composers and telling Black stories, but now yeah, a Black woman such as Angel Blue can go and sing Violetta, you know, can go and sing these title characters, these ingenues, because that broke the barrier. And, but, but it's an unfortunate that these events are the things that inspire that when people, I mean, we've had uh, great Black musicians in opera for forever. Leontine Price, Grace Bumbry, Kathleen Battle, great sopranos and mezzo-sopranos who I've worshipped, uh, Jesse Norman. And they were regularly pushed into uh, repertoire and roles that were for Black women, Black characters. And only recently have we seen that start to shift because of the social movements and because of artists demanding better. And I'm grateful to see that, although that doesn't directly affect me. It makes me hopeful for the industry in general. And um, the other thing that I've discussed before is like the pandemic classism, um, inclusivity in terms of ability and immunocompromised people. What does it mean when you have to fund an audition tour is what we call it. So the, the height of this season is sort of September through December um, with residual before and residual after here and there. But you're flying to New York regularly Flying to Chicago regularly, flying or driving to Atlanta regularly, Houston, Los Angeles. So major cities that companies go at, maybe Philly, um, go to to tour. What does it mean when there are people in this industry who could never afford that, that tour, who could never afford to even step into the room to be heard, or who do not have the ability to? whether that's a physical ability, whether, you know, uh, emotional or um, it, it, immuno ability. Um, for, forgive me for not having a, a more, uh, a better term, but that was a big push during the pandemic. And of course we see a sliding back um, as I've discussed, as I've discussed. So it's it's been great to see some repertoire changes to become more inclusive, but you know, for example, in the entire Met history, to use the Met as an example again, because it's the pinnacle of American opera, right? Only two work, two works by women composers have ever been done at the Met. You know, and and now only pre- prior to this season, only only one by a black composer. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us in the stories that we tell? Yeah, I I'm glad you you brought that to the front of this conversation because I think having just come kind of out of award season as well, that's 
I feel like in the entertainment industry, that's um, in film and TV, that's a space where we see both celebration and disappointment and, and call outs about who is being acknowledged for the work, whose voices are being heard, whose stories are being told. And, you know, on the front of everyone's mind after award season was everything everywhere all at once. And I think I'm curious to know and to have more conversations with people in my life about sort of the depth of understanding of what that means that that film was so well awarded and and brought to the front of the conversation and so rose i just i wanted to to speak to something that that you talked about um about you know only two women's operas have been performed and one black composer and just connect that to the idea of sort of palatability which i think we've touched on throughout our conversation today like desirability and palatability of of stories and and what's going on and what folks want to tell and what folks want to hear. It's, it's, a, it's a wild conversation. Yeah, I go ahead. So the funny thing is, and it's not funny, it's, it's really rather obvious and therefore sort of insidious, is when these diverse stories are told, such as Fire Shut Up in My Bones, such as works by Ethel Smythe, even back then, the, the first uh, woman, uh, woman composer who premiered at, at the Met. These are the best-selling productions in the season. <laughs> so consider that. Now, you, you know, you know, people know that these productions, people want, people want to hear them. People want to see them. They sell. They're still not being done. What does that say about the leadership, the administration, the people making the choices at the top. What does that say? And I, I hate to use these, like, I, I swear I'm not attempting to be fake deep with these rhetorical questions. I just think <laughs> it's that. I hope that it leaves some people to, like, think about the extent of these issues that we're talking about because it, it is mind-boggling to think. You're telling me that these productions are getting more press, more audience reach, more objective to a certain extent now i'm not an insider at the med but ergo one would have to assume based on the numbers more money why would you not do it more rebecca amber would either of you like to like to share next um i was recently talking to my partner about this kind of question as a while back it's funny because we always think like, oh, this movement ha happened, this movement happened. And then recently a friend of mine, he messaged me. He's a he's a really tall, like six, three, six, four, really big um, white uh, gay man. And he's just he's into photography now. And he's he's also having he comes to me with all these questions like why? How come people are mad at this? How come people are mad at that? And I'm like, well. You know, his. I'm glad he asks questions. You know, it's it's fine if, for me, I I like when he he's asking questions because he doesn't understand things um, sometimes. And these movements, I feel like they come, they're part of the the moment, and then like everything else, it sort of kind of fades out. And 
you get a project here and there because of the moment. It's like the whole trend thing. Like, oh, this is a trend now. So movements always turn into a trend or diversity turns into a trend. Everything turns into a trend. What's cool? What's what's happening now? And then it fades back out. It goes back to that whole stepping back thing again. With George Floyd, like that was like, I don't know. I'm really big on common sense. I feel like this whole, a lot of people lack common sense. You think it's common sense to just get up. You know, he says he can't breathe. Like, get up. It, it doesn't make any sense. Or when someone's scared, clearly they're scared of the police. They're not trying to be malicious or fight back. They're just like, oh my gosh, in the moment, my adrenaline, I'm scared. I want to go home. Where's my mom? You know, I'm, I just want to get out of here, you know, because I ran a red light or I was smoking and decided to drive back home or whatever. Then you have like the the LSU um, Angel Reese, I believe, the basketball player. She, you know, she won and her team won, and she's she's not accepting Joe Biden's uh, apology for inviting her team and the losing team, you know, to come to the White House. And people are dragging her Angel for how she she speaks, how she celebrates her wins. It's it's ghetto. It's this. It's that. But when a, another team does it, it's it's okay. Oh, look at them. My 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 partner was saying when when uh, white players do something, they're always yeah. He he went to this school. He's educated. He's strong. He works hard. You know, people celebrate them being such a good player. And you know, when a minority uh, player does something, it's like yeah yeah go him you know it's it's not as celebrated it's like oh yeah he he learned it from the streets or whatever it, it's it's not the same kind of celebration like oh this guy's smarter and this guy he's just he's just talented you know the highlights are different so it's always still that struggle of it almost feels like whose horse is bigger but really we're all just coming from different backgrounds it's no one's who horse is bigger it's just we all have different experiences and all these movements they're just in the moment and then they disappear because no one really wants to talk about it no one wants to keep it or learn from it they learn from it and then okay what's next everything is what's next and to avoid the, the situation any further you know so for me, it doesn't really affect anything. It's you make a project and then you move on. That's what it seems like. Even with the pandemic, there's all these projects about the pandemic. What can you do? What kind of story can you make by yourself? And now the pandemic is gone. You know, what's next? <laughs> so everyone's just trying to move on always. And even with... um um, his name is blanking with me, but people are bringing up his death. The one who, the DJ who was, who used to work with Ellen DeGeneres, how he committed suicide. Um, people are going back to some of his interviews, how he says, when people die, the world moves on. They, they think about it for that moment and then the world moves on. And people are saying he killed himself to, to, to kind of show his point that someone can die. It doesn't matter who they are, no matter how big they are. 
they'll grieve for a moment and then they move on and he's forgotten about. I mean, that's just the world because we all have to think of ourselves. Everyone's thinking of themselves. And if your world isn't part of that world, yeah. that movement, then, okay, I'm sorry for you. I, you know, I'll try to do better. And then you move on and you forget. Even in relationships, you, you're like, okay, I'll do better. I'll work on this. But it's a progress. You know, you might go backwards. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the piece that we were talking about, all of it resonates with me, but the one that sticks out is the the sort of what's next culture. Where are we going? Where are we pushing? How do we get there? How fast can we get there? Who can give us the money to get there? You know, so I really hear that and appreciate you, appreciate you sharing that. Rebecca, I'd love to hear your response to this question as well. And then we'll transition to to our final questions. I can just try to hook into some things that Amber and Zoe Rose have shared. I don't know how directly I'll answer the question, <laughs> but I was inspired by what I was listening to. I think, Amber, you were talking about like how people respond to the Black team celebrating versus the white team celebrating. And that was resonating with me, a powerful conversation with some students uh, in a dialogue in class about the benefit of the doubt. And who do we give the benefit of the doubt to? And then why? So we're talking about um, the game GTA and racism in that game. And students really didn't want to talk about it. They just want to move on, right? <laughs> this is a class that's majority white, majority male. And most of the students play the game and like it. So there's this real resistance to confronting racism in the game, in a game that they've enjoyed, right? Or maybe it's like um, an opera performance you've enjoyed, right? Or what, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, but the students were saying, well, okay, maybe there is racist portrayal in the game, but we're certain the game designers didn't mean it. Wow. What is that about? Wow, that's deep, right? And they had this whole kind of rationale of being certain that it was unintentional. And that was important for them as people who had played the game and enjoyed it you know, being complicit in the racism in the game. We finally got to a place where one brave student said, I think we're saying this because we're feeling that it, it implicates us. We don't know what the game designers did or didn't think about or what their views are. We don't know them. We know what the game is and that we've enjoyed it and that it has racist portrayals in it. I think... So we come about all these movements, and I totally hear this, agree with the frustration around movements. I think capitalist media culture, like, feeds on these movements, like vampires, uh, and gets us thinking about what's next, which is totally not the point, because it needs to be about a deeper learning and a deeper integration into the self of what these movements are truly about, and to get ourselves to ask the question, well, what are we doing here? And also for leadership, like, that was something I think, Zoe Rose, you were bringing up, too. You know, um, who's at the top in these organizations and in these structures? And why are they making the choices they're making? And maybe it's time for them to step aside. But then I think the question comes, instead of flipping oppression, right? What are they going to do that's constructive? If, if, if we need a new artistic director at the Met, okay, but that person has worth too. What are they going to do that's not that? 
We need to make space for other people with, with wider perspectives and diversity and experience. But then how are they going to contribute? I think it gets to kind of a spiritual place of like, what are we meant to be doing here in the world? And how can we contribute in a constructive way in a structure that is more equitable? In terms of movements that have influenced the games industry, I think maybe the the one that that I've noticed the most impact is probably the Me Too movement. The labor conditions in the game industry are really bad uh, for everybody, especially women. And I think that movement has made some positive impact uh, in the industry, uh, for sure. Also because the games industry has a particular history about violence against women uh, with Gamergate, which is almost 10 years old now. Again, no one wants to talk about. I have colleagues, I teach about Gamersgate, Gamergate in class, but I have colleagues saying, of course, male colleagues saying, we still have to keep talking about that. So that's 2014. Yes, we have to keep talking about it. But then uh, I think it's not just talk about it. It's what do we do next? Um, so we try not to uh, just focus on, not just focus on the negative, but try to move into action and invite as many people as we can into action. So it's not just a statement. Um, it's actually what is the design of your game? Like for my students in the classroom. It's not just that you say you're committed to diversity or social impact in your game, but then let's look at the game. Is it really doing it? Is it really doing the work? Is the story really there? Is the experience really there? Um, I don't know if I answered the question, but. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You did. I I have a couple things I want to touch on. And then I can you the first thing is, can you help us out with Gamergate? I, I'm not a, I'm not in that world, so I'd love for you to to help our listeners out who are maybe like huh? also GTA is Grand Theft Auto, which I also put uh, in there because I was like oh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so yeah, help us out. What's what is Gamergate? If you can illuminate for us who don't know. In a nutshell, in, in 2014, uh, there was a, a problem where women involved in games were recipients of a lot of hate. Uh, men in games who were upset about their presence. Now, there's a much more sort of detailed, a long story, but it's easy for for anybody listening to read this on Wikipedia. But but what was different about this is it wasn't just online trolling. It went farther than that. And threats of violence were made in real life against women in games. And so that's where it really escalated. Uh, women had to cancel speaking engagements, for example, uh, uh, or places that were meant to host them had to say, sorry, you're canceled because we can't afford the security. So there, there was very serious problem uh, at that point. And so that that opened up, I think, people's eyes in games to, there was already a lot of misogyny in games. Um, in lots of entertainment there is, right? So it's not so surprising, but that opened people's eyes to the the level and severity of it that was going on. And I think, you know, there's lots of contributing factors there. Um, the, the anonymity of technology, right? Allowing people on social media, the intersection of social media and games there. We're not just talking about in games. But the, but yeah, that's Gamergate in a, in a nutshell, in a very brief, very yeah. brief nutshell. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. Um, the other piece I wanted to touch on and then we'll, we'll transition to our, our last questions here was the connected to what, um, what Amber was talking about of, of, the sort of ephemeral nature of of movements or of the feeling of wanting to change or the motivation to change and then receding i think that that is connected to what you were talking about the discomfort or the 
denial of of what comes up for students or folks when they're faced with complicity, um, when they're faced with those moments where they realize, oh, shit, like, I'm a part of this, right? Like I had a student once when I was working in environmental edu- education class in, in grad school, and this person was furious that we had insinuated that Dances with Wolves was a movie that was maybe not the most socially aware movie. And this person was just like devastated, right? Like, you mean this can't be my favorite movie anymore? And I was like, listen, it can be your favorite movie. You've just got to go into this with open eyes and an understanding of what that means, right? I'm not trying to take it away from you. I'm just trying to help you see this with a um, a more open lens, right? And so that shame and fear that, that comes with the idea of complicity, I think especially for white students, it, like it can take over a classroom, it can take over spaces, and I think it has and continues to do that in different spaces. Um, and, you know, we we encounter that as DEI practitioners a lot as well, that when faced with that idea that, kind of like Zoe Rose was talking about earlier, that like we we are all cogs in the system and that just because I show up in my liberal container of like, I don't want to do this. Yes, I believe in defunding police. Yes, I believe in the possibility of abolishing prisons and schools and and finding new imaginative ways to be in the world. Um, Does not negate the fact that I am still a tool and a product of whiteness and of white supremacy and of white feminist culture too, just to be specific. So I'm just seeing so many threads that y'all are are connecting and finding ways to connect the dots beautifully across the, the entertainment world. So again, this is this is really lovely and illuminating. Yeah, go ahead, Rebecca. I'm so happy you brought up the word guilt and shame because I think those do really big, bad work for people. What's important is to say, we can all be forgiven, right? Your guilt, your shame, it's like actually really not important. It's not about you or what you did or what you thought. It's about what you do. What are you going to do now? What are you going to do next? And to try and... Uh, help people let go of that and not sit in that or shame them um, further, right? But to then just turn the conversation is, well, what are you going to do next? What's the next game you're going to play? What's the next game you're going to design? What's the next story you're going to tell? I let out a Baptist amen. Very, very, very true, Rebecca. Awesome. Y'all are, y'all are really, really stunning humans. Well, ultimately um, guilt and shame is about ego, right? It's about the self. But if you're really going to care about other people, which is ultimately what we're kind of talking about, right? I mean, to get really basic, it's not about you. It can't be about you and your own guilt and your own shame. You have to let, let it go. At a big picture level, what should the entertainment industry keep in place to promote equitable environments? And what should the entertainment industry change? So this question was really thought provoking. Um, when I first read it on, you know, the potential question sheet, I, I kind of sat there and, you know, I think art in general, but particularly this art form is, you know, in and of itself meant to be a creative outlet, a vulnerable act sociopolitical act a sense of uh, a sense of protest really um in both performance and 
the stories we can create and compose as performers and as people who make our program works. Um, art has always been sociopolitical. Um, you know, it has never been divorced of current event. And I think that we need to keep telling these human these these human stories. Um, I think we need to keep appealing to the pathos and, and empathy people have. And yeah, it's true that the classics are, you know, classic for reason. You think of La Boheme, you know, you think of people experiencing the tragedy of life and death and community, such as in this work. And that's what sort of differentiates from others that have sort of fallen to the wayside. And I think we need to articulate those as being the reasons why they uh, come out, come out in front, I should say. And to continue to champion contemporary works, works by marginalized people um, who tell these stories with sociopolitical elements. I think that's really important, personally. Um, and I think people need to make more of an effort, even in their own performance opportunities, such as recitals, degree recitals. You know, for my master's recital, and, and I don't mean this to toot my own horn, I just mean this to offer an example. The entire second half of my master's recitals was all works by women composers. And I had a, you know, a, a for lack of a better term, a, a brown Latina woman and a, and a black woman and queer composers, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if we are liberal forward-thinking people in academia, that needs to also be present in our work because I'm amazed at how many times I go to recitals and people are still exclusively performing and programming works by white men. And it's like, it starts with us. It, to 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 avoid being long-winded, it, it does start with us. That's what I want to impart to people overall. And we have to be the voices of change. We have to say, you know, we need more inclusive audition opportunities. We need more, we need to forego application fees. And if it gets to the point where you know, people don't want to adhere to the things that a community is asking for. We need the least vulnerable, pe vulnerable people to make actionable change. Refuse to apply to the company with $40 application fees. Refuse to audition for the companies or take contracts with the companies who you know are pointedly abusive and racist. Refuse to participate with companies who do blackface, Asian face, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so... <laughs> I suppose it's a two for one things that should um, change or stay the same. It's like, I, I don't know why closing time that song, every new beginning comes from some of the beginnings. And that's like coming up in my mind as um, the push forward is both a, a, a change and sort of what Amber was talking about of holding on to the efforts that we've already made carrying those into the work that we do and the things that we discuss zoe rose i was really hoping you would sing and you did yes <laughs> and what you had to share is also <laughs> i think it's simply prophetic and kind of like rebecca has mentioned a couple times 
I, I will just like lob it in here just gently. I, I danced for a long time and that was a place where it felt like I could reckon with like, what's my purpose here? Why am I here? What am I doing? Where am I going? And I think what you shared, sorry, Rose, is, is connected to that piece of like, you know, the folks who are sitting here together today are the folks who are making good trouble and being subversive and finding ways to change it. And I hear strongly what you say about folks who have the ability and have the time and space and money to disrupt should on behalf of other folks who are are less able to. And so I hear that and just wanted to give some space for, for Amber and Rebecca to share as well. It's almost like I don't even know what to say after that because it's so true, like uh, what Zoe Rose was saying. Just, you know, I always grew up believing that, you know, art in every form is a voice for somebody. So, you know, you're telling, and a story someone's trying to tell. And whether that story is fictional, um, but they, they see it in their mind, so it's part of them in some way, or if it's, personal and what they're actually experiencing you know it's still a voice in some kind of way that they're trying to share to the world and just keep trying to tell these voices to keep trying to collaborate with other voices is important because you it's just like I love traveling you you won't understand another culture culture another language another just way of life of living if you don't travel or not even just traveling outside of the world, walk, you know, walking to someone's home or being invited to dinner of a different, you know, background. You you don't, you'll never know someone's walking in their shoes unless you try it or just, you know, just having a simple conversation. When I went to Paris to do photography, I, I didn't know French, but I really had to really reach down and try to learn and speak to uh, my my uh, professor told me, go and get as many photos of strangers as you can. And it really teaches you how to kind of get out of your comfort zone and say, hi, how are you? What are you like? You know, or who are, you know, who are you? What do you like to do? What kind of person you are? May I take a photo of you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and young and old people have so many stories to tell and you'll never know if you don't talk (laughs) you know if you don't collaborate even with appraising I walk into so many houses and we're not supposed to talk but a lot of the older generation they have no one to talk to so when someone comes in their home they want to tell you all these stories and I'll stand there and listen you know I might not speak back too much because technically we're not supposed to talk at all to the client you know, but I'll listen and I'm like, wow. And then I will kind of break the rule and be like, oh, you know, how did you do that? Or oh, how old were you when you did that? You know, but, um, and then it inspires a whole, whole new, you know, like, oh, I can write a story about that, you know, and, you know, maybe share someone else's story. Your mind just kind of opens up when you talk to other people from other places. And, even if they're in different places in the world, you see someone sitting at the bar by themselves, hey, are you okay? And they might share, you know? Um, And you get a different perspective on what's sadness and what's depression or what's, you know, how can you make other people feel better? 
Um, but just keep talking to different people and keep trying to change the world in your stories and breaking the rules and including other people, you know, and not just seeing your own world. Cause that's what that I believe is what the problem was is like what my mom says, white writers see white worlds. And it's like, if you kind of open up your world, then your world becomes more diverse and kind of going back, I think, to maybe the second question a little bit, you know, I've seen kind of a negative change, too, in, in, in my acting class. It's, oh, we don't want um, any more white actors anymore. They want more diversity. I can't get any roles. I don't have any more auditions because they, they don't want white people anymore. Okay, so how do we, when we go to auditions and we have to introduce ourselves, what do we say? Oh, I'm, I'm 120th Native American. You know, I'm want to try to get back in the door. I'm like, no, that's not what you do. Like, if you know, I have, you know, my grandmother was half um Cherokee. I'm not gonna say I'm, you know, I'm now I'm Indian. You know, I can't do that just so I can get more roles because now there's that trend of um indigenous you know, Indian roles. I'm black. I have Native American in me, but that you know, I'm black. So if you're white, you're and you have a hundred million billion, you know, whatever Native American, don't try to make yourself Native American just to get back into to the industry or back and get more roles. That's a that's going backwards again. We have to include and accept. Um, I think Rebecca was saying, you know, accept and it's not about you. It, you know, it's it's about change. And it's just about including people and keep moving forward that way and broaden your eyes, broaden your world. So now it's not black and white or black and, you know, or white and Asian or LGBTQ and, and, and this and that and whatever, you know, it's just everybody. Yeah. Thanks, Amber. All right, Rebecca, would you like to share? Yeah, I think you're also speaking, Amber, to that scarcity mindset. And I think that's something Zoe Rose brought up earlier. But I strongly believe there's room on the stage for everybody. <laughs> uh, and it seems like again and again, numbers show that, right? Um, in terms of what I think the industry should keep doing, I think it should keep the conversations open that have been opened by these movements. That's one positive thing. Whether these movements stick around or or make real structural change, they do certainly make people more comfortable, if not truly comfortable, but at least used to talking about these issues. Uh, and that's positive. And I hope the conversations continue. In terms of something industry could start doing, I know it's not a popular idea, but I'd say quotas. It's very concrete. And if we look at problems, we can see the numbers and numbers speak very loudly. And we can make decisions. People in leadership roles can simply decide they have target goals and quotas and do it. I know that's a very unpopular idea with some people, especially some Americans feel that's very undemocratic somehow, but it certainly has worked in other places. Um, and anyway, I would consider that. And then in terms of games industry specifically, I wish for the games industry to continue to center play maybe more than the ethos of the game, because I think the ethos of play is a great connector. What? is more powerful than to say to somebody, we play with me. Do you want to play with me? 
That's a very powerful question. So I hope that the games industry can continue to deepen its interest and curiosity about its own roots in play as a, as a way forward to be even a, a better connector of people. I love that. Yeah, Zoe Rose, you wanted to to chime in on that? Two, a couple things. I absolutely agree with the idea of quotas. I think it's incredibly important. And like I mentioned before, we do have organizations sort of keep an eye on that. The Solos Coalition, Block Off Reliance, AGMA, et cetera. Um, and I think, I, I just am so thankful for their, for their efforts. The other thing is um, casting without really consideration of any physical attributes. And I don't mean that by, it's it's often referred to as blind casting. And I don't love that term for obvious reasons. But um, that is because, of course, when we are seeking more diversity and inclusion, we want to consider identity and we want to include identity and uh, uh, race, skin color, size, et cetera, et cetera. What I mean by that is um, things we've discussed before that Amber has brought up, not putting people into casting tropes. Um, yes, a fat person can and should be romantic leads. Yes, people of color, black people, indigenous people should be uh, leading people as opposed to just uh, supporting characters, common characters, um, or even worse yet, as is a tradition in opera, casting white people and putting them in fat suits, uh, racial makeup, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that's an initiative that companies should take much more seriously. Um, and I, like I said, I don't believe in quote, quote, blind casting. I don't think that's the fair, equitable way. The other thing is that we're moving more into uh, gender bed productions. I've brought up Lava M a lot, but that's just because it's one that is done pretty much all the time <laughs> by a lot of companies. Um, you're not going to go more than like two or three years without putting on a production of Labo M. That's just like an impossibility. And, you know, you have, um, let's say, mezzo-sopranos singing what would traditionally be a baritone role. And it's as simple as maybe singing it up the octave, maybe adjusting. I, I mean, some some people could probably sing it in register in octave. <laughs> we have mass talent, but challenging identity in works that are already written and performed, um, whether that be gender, whether that be race, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a really important effort in the performing world that is going to need to be at the front and center. So I hope that that offers just a little bit more by way of actionable items, because um, you both offered really, really great ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Zoe Rose. All right, y'all. I think we are going to head into into closing time. Speaking of the song, <laughs> um, I know folks are eager to get on with uh, all the wonderful work that y'all are doing. So Kuri Labs just wants to say thank you for your time. And the intention with our, our podcast space is to do exactly as y'all are talking about, to make the time and space, to make the places where folks can be heard and share ideas and have difficult conversations. So thank you all. Uh, for leaning in today and for sharing and and just holding, um, like Zoe Rose said, uh, an empathetic space. We really appreciate it. I want to thank our guests today for joining in and the Equity Labs production team. Equity work is difficult work that's worth doing. 
It's done in community and it's a responsibility we all carry.